When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. In the current mobilization around black lives, everyone can do something. That's what Mia Birdsong says. She's a senior fellow of the Economic Security Project and an inaugural Ascend Fellow of the Aspen Institute. She's also founding co-director of Family Story, and she's widely known for her TED conversation with the founders of Black Lives Matter. And her TED Talk, The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True, has been viewed almost two million times. Now she's got a new book out. It's called How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. Last time we talked here, it was about her podcast for the nation. It's called More Than Enough. We reached her today at home in Oakland. Mia Birdsong, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, we're still thinking about Minneapolis dismanding its police department and cities from L.A. to New York cutting their police budget, things that were unimaginable just a couple of weeks ago. People are asking, what comes next? What will we have instead of the police we now have? You've written a lot about the resilience and creativity and capability we can find in low-income communities. What have you learned there about how to keep people safe without calling the cops? Well, I think one of the things that I'm reminded of in this moment is there's a way in which we have, we think of police and policing and the prison system as inevitable or normal. And I think part of what we have to understand is that human history has had, we've had lots of periods of time where there were not cops. So for the communities that I have been kind of collaborating with and learning from for the last 20 years and many of the communities and people who I talk to for the book, they're not folks who would call the cops. They're not calling the police when something happens because their experience historically with the police is when the police show up, they do not keep us safe. Um, They sometimes add to the harm, the violence that we're experiencing. So communities have developed their own ways of addressing harm. And sometimes that includes creating systems of consequence for people who cause harm. Sometimes it's really just about making sure that the people who are experiencing harm stay safe. I mean, that really can look like a million different ways. I think part of what is important to understand is that when it's, when there are these community-based practices of making sure that people stay safe in the face of harm, they're going to be reflective of the values and norms of the community. And that's really important. So that's like what I learned in terms of what it means to address harm when it occurs. And I will say for myself that, you know, as somebody whose entry point to social justice work was through abolition in 1998, when I have experienced or witnessed harm, my first response is not to think about calling the cops. It really is to rely on the relationships that I have. Sometimes that's my neighbors, if it's something that happens in my neighborhood, or it's just like my friends and family, if it's something that happens um, away from where I live. 
I think the other thing to understand is that, so that piece is really about addressing harm as it happens. And then there is a tremendous amount that we can do to prevent harm. We know what kinds of things actually keep us safe. People having their basic needs met, people having housing and food and access to education and access to healthcare. Those are the kinds of things that keep us safe. And so many municipalities are spending, you know, half of their budget on policing, which means that they're not actually investing in the kinds of things that keep us safe. So one of the, the really important things, I think, for people to understand about the movement to defund police and ultimately the, moved, the movement to abolish the prison industrial complex is that it is not just about the absence of something. It really is about the presence of the kinds of things that keep all of us safe. Well, we'd all like to be in the streets at the protest marches, but not all of us are young and strong and healthy. You're right that we can still do something. Please explain. Okay, so to be clear, I'm young and strong and healthy. Well, young, I think that I'm young. Um, and I am not in the streets. <laughs> that is not my jam. That's not what I'm about. But there's some, I mean, there are very practical things that I think people can be doing. People who are, who are marching are putting themselves at risk. And there's a way in which we need to actually be thinking about how we keep them safe. So people who are protesting actually need safety buddies who are people who are at home and are making sure that they're keeping track of their, their people who are in the streets. So that includes like people can turn on the, the tracking on their phone and, the, and their safety buddy can keep track of them, or they can just like text them when they get home to make sure that they get home or they're the phone call they make, right? If they get arrested and their safety buddy like is the person who's going to make sure that they get bail or they get a lawyer or whatever, that they get their medication, like those kinds of things. So that's like in a very minute practical way. But the fact is that protests are a very specific tactic to raise awareness, to express all of the emotion behind this recent cycle of white violence. But it's also, it's just one of the tactics, right? We need like long-term strategy. We need people talking to their elected officials and we need people thinking about like what legislation needs to look like. We need people making clear to our leadership that the actions that people in the street are taking are things that we support. So that leaders can't just be like, oh, it's just like this like small percentage of people who are taking to the streets. Everybody else who's staying home doesn't care or isn't interested. They, they need to know that all of us are behind the protesters and that the uprising, we see it as a righteous thing and it's something that we want. We want the same kind of change that they do. So much of figuring out what to do, I think is not, shouldn't be an intellectual exercise we participate in by ourselves, but it actually should be something that we're talking to our friends and family about so that we're taking collective action. We're not taking individual action. You open your new book, How We Show Up, with a quotation from James Baldwin. Here it is. The place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it, close quote. That's, that's amazing. What does it mean to you? Well, for me, that means that the country in which, or the world in which I would experience liberation as a Black woman, I know of no, no time that that has existed. And I'm not just like, oh, let me just lay down and die or go to another planet, <laughs> whatever. Like, I feel like it's not going to happen unless I participate in its manifestation. And for me, that means everything from 
political action, you know, being parts of organizations, working to change um, policies and practices. It means thinking about the kind of culture we live in and how I'm contributing to that. But it also means like, what's the work that I need to do with and in community with my loved ones so that my experience of living in the world is less impacted by white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism. You say that we need to campaign for defunding and abolishing the police, but you also say defunding and abolishing the police is not the answer. That's pretty striking. What do you mean? Well, it's not the only answer, right? That is, that is absolutely a piece of the puzzle, but the fact is that certainly in Black communities, like our experiences of violence aren't just from the police. People experience interpersonal violence. They're experiencing harm and violence, all of us, right? The harm and violence we experience is actually usually with people that we know. So ending state violence isn't actually going to address all of that. There's a lot that, that the practice of transformative justice has to teach us about how we address harm. Part of why the, the prison system and um, policing doesn't work is not just because of the violence that occurs when the police are interacting with, like come to a situation, but the act of locking somebody up is violence. Taking somebody out of their community is violence. So even when people are causing harm, our approach to addressing that harm is violent. And we're not going to actually decrease violence in our world if our response to violence is more violence. I mean, this is some stuff I feel like you learn in kindergarten, right? Like if somebody hits you, right? Hitting them back is just going to escalate things. Like that's some basic stuff that, that children know. Yet we have an entire well-funded system that is built on revenge, that's built on punishment. And if we actually want to decrease violence, we need to be working with the people who experience it or experience it and survive it to repair, to make sure that they're safe, to help them heal from whatever trauma they experience. But we also need to be working with perpetrators because we can't throw people away, right? We don't lock, we, locking them up and, and like hoping that, that prison somehow is just going to like solve the problem is not going to work because they're going to come out. And those folks need to also go through their own kind of healing. They need to go through the healing of accountability. They need to go through the healing of self-reflection and the healing of repair. And unless we're willing to do that work, we're going to kind of continue to have this like snowballing, growing, violent system that ultimately doesn't do anything good for any of us. Well, like everybody else with a book coming out now, you wrote yours before the coronavirus and the stay-at-home orders. But there's a lot here that's relevant. And I know you've thought a lot about the challenges that come from the, the physical distancing that we're all subject to now. Yes. I will say it is very strange to have a book come out right now, but I'm also grateful that I didn't write about, you know, like houseplants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the book is really about like where I found and learned from people who were creating family and friendship and community in ways that are expansive and inclusive, deeply caring and loving and just liberatory. And a through line in the book that I think is really relevant for us right now is Americans are allergic to asking for help. We see asking for help, like not knowing how to do something or not being able to do something as a kind of failure or as a kind of weakness. Because, you know, we have this idea that we're meant to be super independent um, and we very much value that. When in fact, we are deeply interdependent. And what I found, what I learned from folks is not only 
do we need to get better at asking for and receiving help when we need something, but we actually need to be thinking about support as something that brings ease to our lives. So for example, I have a friend who kind of when shelter in place started, she would text me and a couple of other folks when she was going to the grocery store to ask if we needed anything um, or we wanted her to pick up anything. I thought that was super generous. And I was very hesitant to say yes, because I know what a pain in the butt it is to go to the grocery store right now. And you know, and I'm like, I can go to the grocery store myself. But part of what I learned from the folks in my book that I applied to myself in this moment was that she knows I can go to the grocery store myself. She is trying to offer something to create some ease in my life. And every time she's done it, which has like been, you know, half a dozen times since this all started, um, I was able to say, yes, like if she, I'm out of salt, right? I can't cook with no salt. So her bringing me salt meant that I didn't have to grocery, I didn't have to go grocery shopping for like another week. Um, she brought coffee one time, she brought oats. Like there are these things that I would just be like, yes, I need this one or two things. And her bringing it brought ease to my life and meant that I didn't have to go grocery shopping um, for a while. And in addition to what it did for me, I also was very clear as I would wave to her through the window as she was dropping things off on my porch, that it actually was like a gift to her to be able to be in my life in this way that she knew was supportive. So as we are all sitting here sheltering in place, um, and as we, especially as some of us um, are venturing out more and there are other folks who cannot do that, we need to really lean into our interdependence. We need to be thinking about what can I offer folks? What can I specifically offer folks in my life that would bring ease to them? And then, you know, for those of us who are being on the receiving end of that, we really need to just accept it and recognize that it's not that it just does something um, beneficial for us, but it actually does something for the person who's supporting us. Mia Birdsong, her new book is called How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. Mia, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.